All right. Thank you, music team. It's a sweet song. Sing to the Lord, Christ is ours. When we do not deserve Him, and yet He condescends to us, redeems us, rescues us, makes us His own. Sweet realities. Let's, uh, let's bow before Him in prayer. Christ, You are ours, and we are Yours. We're humbled by that. We're humbled by how uh, Your love for us doesn't change now that our sins are forgiven. And we're humbled by the fact that uh, You desire to commune with us day in and day out, to walk with us as this song says. Um, We taste that, we experience that now in part. Um, because often our sin um, just gets in the way of communion with you. Uh, yeah, it doesn't change your love, but it changes our experience of it. And we look to that day where sin's going to be removed, and uh, we're going to walk in Zion's streets, as the song says. Walk with you, know you, as we're going to see tonight, work for you. Um, The curse will be lifted, and we will be productive for the glory of Christ. We're thankful for all of that, and we pray tonight that you would uh, work among us, you would produce the fruit that you desire to see in our lives, and increase our faith, encourage us tonight. Thank you for this group. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good evening. It is a joy, delight to be back with you tonight after our one-week hiatus. Uh, Some of you are like, did you enjoy your vacation? And uh, I worked like a dog for my vacation, so that was fun. No, we did enjoy it. We built a little uh, stone patio out back. I roasted a lot of coffee, watched a movie with the fam. It was fun. So Rich taught for me on Thursday, and he taught about anxiety, which was always relevant, right? Always relevant to our hearts and uh, super helpful, so very thankful for him. So he and I kind of passed like ships in the night. They're out of town now visiting their family, so as you think of them, pray that they would have a joyful time visiting their kids and grandkids, which is the, the real draw. So, as you know, we've been studying Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and man, the Lord is just really using this letter in my own heart, and I, I know he's been using it in your lives too. He's bearing so much fruit, and that's exactly what Paul intended with this letter. He knew that if these believers, if these Ephesians could really understand, they could begin to get their minds around the incredible glory of all that God has done for them in Christ, that the Spirit would take those truths and radically transform the way they live, their lives. So, he puts his pen to paper and he writes to deepen their understanding of these truths. He tells them in chapter 1 that they've been destined to receive this incredible salvation that they don't deserve. And then in chapter 2, he tells them how they came to receive it. God came to them while they were dead. He resurrected them from the dead, spiritually, made them alive, and he reconciled them to himself through the cross of Christ and to each other in the church. 
And that's not just true of those Ephesians. Then it's true of us today. If you've believed in Christ, God literally came to you and raised you up from the dead spiritually. He opened your mind to understand the truth. He recreated you and outfitted you for a new life in Christ. That was His work that He did to you. Whenever you were not seeking it, you were dead. He recreated you as His new humanity with all the other believers, as His new temple, and that's expressed right here at Timberlake. And He designed you, He designed this church to demonstrate His wisdom and His glory to the universe. When we begin to grasp these things, when we begin to get this, it changes the way we live tremendously. We've been resurrected for good works now, Paul says in, in chapter 2.10. And the rest of his letter then explores exactly how our lives are transformed and, and what that transformation should look like progressively, in real time, step by step, as we learn to follow Christ now. And as we change, little by little, step by step, we're, we're growing in the reflection of God's very glory now on earth we begin to reflect more and more of what He is actually like to the world around us. And we hold out for them what, what kind of transformation that's really actually possible in Christ our Messiah. Transformation that the world doesn't know anything about. And they're trying to scramble for it in any ways they can get it. We have the real thing. Not in its totality yet, but we have it right now. And if you've been with us, you know that, that Paul's very practical. So he's not just kind of pie-in-the-sky guy, giving you abstracts. He's very practical on what this looks like, and he pushes this transformation into the most mundane areas of our lives. Areas like the relationships you have with each other in the church. The people you don't like. The people you like. Your family relationships. Husband, wife, father, children. And over the next two weeks, he's going to continue to push this in into the practical area of our work relationships. Our work relationships. So in Ephesians 5, if you want to just go ahead and, or 6, if you want to go ahead and turn there. In Ephesians 6, He addresses husbands, then he addresses wives, then he addresses children, he addresses fathers. Then he continues to push this thing on, as we've seen, into the area of our work relationships. He addresses slaves and masters, which would be closely parallel, not exact, but closely parallel to our employer-employee relationships. And like family, so that's where we've been for the last few weeks, like family... Work is an incredibly important area to think through, especially how Christ relates to work and, our, and the new creation life, how new creation is, is, pans out in our, our work relationships. Just think about the sheer amount of time that people spend working or in the work environment. On average, most people are going to spend approximately 35% of their lifetime, their waking hours, at work. They'll spend around 45 years total working. And here's a sobering thought for those of us who sit in meetings. 22 of those hours spent in meetings. Ugh, brutal. 
So it takes up a significant portion of our lives, for sure. And, and Paul knows that work's important, but not just because we spend so much time there. That's true. But more fundamentally, because of how God designed work to work. Like, what, what he designed about it. So before we're going to jump into his instructions here to the slaves and to the masters and, and, and apply those to ourselves, before we jump in there, I want to take tonight and back up a bit, like we did with marriage, and pan out to get a wider angle from Scripture on work. Remember, in, in, as Paul's writing, he's inspired for sure, but, but he's writing to us with an inspired framework, a biblical framework, a framework that's drenched in his knowledge of the story of Scripture, and that story informs how he understands work and its implications in, in our lives. And I think as we look at this, as we take this survey, you're going to find the Lord reframing your own understanding of work. He'll reframe it, and then He'll motivate you in it as you catch the vision and the purpose of work. So I'm calling it the labor of our hands, a biblical theology of work. And really, the Bible develops this around four headings, is what I'm, what I'm calling this, or we're going to develop this under four headings. And the, the Scriptures develop this, this theme of work from creation to the new creation. And we're going to look at these four headings. So heading number one, as you guys know where we typically start when we do these biblical theologies of different themes, we, we, we start at creation. So we're going to look first at the work at creation. So after, if you're taking notes, after you finish writing that down, turn to Genesis 1. You need to stretch your fingers out? You can because we're going to be turning, turning to several passages of Scripture tonight. And you know our approach here at this point when we do these messages. Uh, I think somebody in Sunday school last week joked, where should we go? You know, some, certain passages said, to Genesis, you know. And it seems to be a theme. When we want to get a framework for anything in the Bible, we should start where the Bible starts where God starts at creation, and then work our way out. And when we go back here, guess what we find? Work at creation is modeled by God himself. very first thing we see is that work in creation doesn't start with man. It starts with God. God is the fundamental worker. Our creator is a working God. So you obviously understand that this, all of Genesis 1, if you've been around, if you've heard the story read, is six days of creation, seventh day God rests, and he just, basically the way this, the story is laid out is that God brings about things from his word, out of nothing, and then he organizes what he's made. Obviously human beings are the, the climax of this creation, in, made in God's image, and in chapter 2, actually the very first verses of chapter 2 are the conclusion of this first creation story. So notice what he says here. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. So this is after day 6. The heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished, notice this word, his work. God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. You hear that repeated three times? God's a worker. 
That's fundamental to who he is. He's creative. His creative activity is described in terms of his work, what he does. And so that's that in and of itself. I mean, we could stop there and, and ponder that. We could just think through the complexity of creation, think through its diversity. The sciences are just now beginning to kind of <laughs> get into the molecular structures of things. I mean, I'm saying just beginning, meaning over the course of human history. Understanding galaxies more and, 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 and the universe more than we've ever done before. And we're just scratching the surface. Creation is complex. It's diverse. Its beauty is unparalleled. Its magnitude. Think about the universe. The magnitude of what God has made. All that's worth our consideration as image bearers. In terms of how we think about God as the worker and what he's made, and then what he's called us to do in imaging him. So we won't, as much as I want to think through that with you guys, we'll, we'll keep, it, keep it here, but just, God is a magnificent creator, he's a magnificent worker, and he is our example. And Christ, as God in the flesh, is a worker as well. Christ was a productive worker, he was the most productive man who ever lived. He says in John 5.17, you don't have to turn there, he says, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. My father's working until now, and I'm, I myself am working. I'm carrying out, carrying on the work of my father. And then at the end of John, notice what the gospel writer John says. He says, <laughs> it's kind of as a conclusion. Now there were also many other things that Jesus did beyond what John wrote. Many other things that he did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Incredibly productive man. Incredibly productive. Christ was a productive worker too, and he's our model in these things. God works for sure, but he's also, notice in this text, not only does he work, what else does he do? Back in Genesis. Just yell it out. He rests. He rests. He's also a resting God. Now, that's very interesting, too. Did he need to rest? No. He doesn't rest because he needs it, but because rest is good, and it's part of the rhythm of life that he wants to model for his creatures, for his image bearers. He's our example, and he patterns rest for us in in this Genesis 2 passage. Now, man, again, we we could launch here as well and talk about what this means. But just, let's just suffice it to say that, that rest reminds us that He is sovereign over our work. God is sovereign over our work. And that all our work rests on Him and His blessing alone. It rests on Him for the ultimate fruitfulness and pro- productivity of our work. You can jot down Psalm 127 uh, on that if you want to look that up later kind of talking about the vanity of people that try to pursue work apart from faith and reliance on God. So rest reminds us of this. It reminds us that God's sovereign over our work. And rest also helps our bodies and minds, right? As we're freed from labor to commune with God and rejoice with His people. So rest is important, and and right from the outset, it's modeled for us at creation. So, my first point here is this one. I want, I want, I want you to see that, that work at creation is modeled first by God himself. And then notice that work is a good and dignified gift from God. So if God does it, it's obviously good. 
And it's flowing from God to His creatures as a good and dignified gift from Him to us. Now, I jotted down a few references here, and it, it just it's more implicational. So that's Genesis 1.28, which is talking about God blessing us and saying to us, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So he's given us commands, which involve work. And these commands were given to us, I want you to notice, before the fall. Before the fall. In fact, we could, we could even go further and say that meaningful and God-glorifying work is, is what it means to be human. One pastor said it like this, to avoid work is dehumanizing. Dehumanizing. It degenerates the human condition. So work is a good gift from God. Work itself is not a curse. <laughs> even though that's how we think of it sometimes. Work's not a curse. Work, work is a good gift from God. But we often treat it like a curse, especially if you're in a job you hate. You know, I just wait, I hear it all the time. You know, just it's 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 in the drinking water. You just can't wait till Friday. You know, get the leisure. Like get to get to your time off. Can't wait for vacation. Our entire culture is fixated on early retirement, the full and unhindered enjoyment of leisure. And this, is, this bleeds over into even how we think about heaven, right? We, we think of it as a workless place where we sing all day long in spirit form. That is not the biblical vision of heaven. We'll talk about that in a minute. That's not the case. There will be singing, for sure, but there will be a lot more than that. In just by itself, I put up here, it's a good gift, and it's a dignified gift from God. It's a dignified gift. Um, meaning that you can jot down Psalm 8 on that if you want to look at the dignity of, of the gift of work. And what I mean by that is it's, it's, it's from God to us, as we're going to see, and we are regal creatures. Meaning we are kings and queens, so to speak, in our original state. Uh, we were kings and queens given this task of, of dominion. So it, it, the work itself the, the, is dignified. And it confronts the idea that the workplace is, is just an environment for some other thing, like to share the gospel, or even though it is. Work itself has dignity. Work itself has value. And it also confronts this idea that, there's, that, that pastoral work, or quote-unquote ministry work, is some higher level um, than all other forms of work. That all other forms of work sort of exist for this higher level form of ministry. No, God says that all work here, all dominion, and the work unto that end is important and dignified. It's a good and dignified gift from God. We see that at creation, and we also see, last, I think this is the last point here, yeah, that, that work at creation serves God's purposes, like I just said, in dominion and worship. So work has a purpose. It's not all about you. Its purpose, according to God and how he created it, its purpose is in dominion, the exercise of dominion on God's behalf, and it's in the worship, the increase of God's worship. 
So um, we spent a lot of time developing some of these themes when we looked at the marriage. We did a biblical theology of marriage. You guys remember that? Yeah, kind of. Just nod so I don't, I don't talk about it. Okay? And you can go back and listen to it. We'll save time. <laughs> so in these opening chapters of Genesis... Work is a gift, yes, but it is the original means by which we take dominion on God's behalf. Look up here in verse 26. God said, in chapter 1, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, so we reflect God in our original created state, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the, of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So the point, there's one, there's one command here, let them have dominion. That's sort of the overriding, overarching command of Genesis 1, dominion, meaning rule, reign. Let them rule over everything else God made. So this language he just described over all the fish, and the birds of the heavens, the livestock, you, you might feel like it's a little bit out of touch with your life, because you're not <laughs> Adam, or in this agrarian context, but... That's literally shorthand for everything God just made in the other days. So he's saying, Adam and Eve rule over this creation. They have dominion. And then later in verse 28, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea of the earth. Notice it all culminates in the dominion phrase, and have dominion over the fish of the sea. So my point, and I think really Moses' point in Genesis, is that work what we put our hands to, both in the family and in vocationally, that is unto the end of dominion. All right, at least dominion in chapter one. Okay, do you see that? And God, the fulfillment of God's mission. So remember the wider purpose of God in creation, back all the way in the beginning. His wider purpose is to fill the earth with his image bearers. Who, who reflect Him and reflect His glory perfectly because they're in communion with Him, they trust Him. So reflect Him, and these image bearers then take His rule and rule over and subdue and cultivate the world that He created for His glory and the pleasure of His people. The first human pair are framed in these regal terms as kings and queens of creation to extend God's reign and rule, and they do this through their work and the multiplication of children. Again, there's no sin of children who perfectly reflect God and are able to increase this dominion over all the earth. And as we seep into chapter 2, we begin to see how this works out between husbands and wives and, and, this, and, and how this garden fits in. It becomes clear in chapter 2 that they were to do this in the context of an intimate relationship with their Lord, the Lord who walked with them in the garden, the Lord who kind of bent down and and formed Adam from the dust with his hands, and interacted with him in creation. In this garden temple is the idea of the garden. They're to do this in an intimate relationship with their Lord as, as his almost priestly worshipers. The, 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 the way that they're described in Genesis 2, so if, if you think kings in Genesis 1, they're almost described as priests, kind of, in Genesis 2. And that's kind of where this thing goes. So there were the priests the worshipers in the Garden of Eden, in communion with their Lord. So we could say here at the outset that, that work was designed to serve God's purposes of both extending His dominion and increasing His worship. Extending dominion, increasing His worship. 
And this means then that work is fundamentally about God. Not you. God, not you. God, not ourselves. So many people approach work selfishly to fulfill themselves, self-fulfillment, instead of fundamentally to please God, to please the Lord who gave them work and to advance His purposes in their work. Now that's complicated. I understand. Because guess what's happened? The fall. A lot of things to think through with that. But to advance His purposes in and through our work. And the irony here then, if we don't get this right, the irony here is that we will pursue work as an end in itself. We will pursue work for satisfaction and for meaning without God. And guess what you won't find? Meaning and satisfaction. Just ask Solomon in Ecclesiastes. But when we pursue vocation and work for the glory of God, for His purposes by faith, He gives us the satisfaction as a byproduct. He gives us profound satisfaction, profound joy in it, but we'll talk about that more later. For now, I just want you to see that work at creation, again, this is the reframing, the work at creation exists for God and for His mission and purposes, just like marriage does. So, as we know, things didn't stay this clean for long in the garden. Sadly, his people rebelled against this charter. And this rebellion in the garden brought devastating consequences to everything, including work. So let's consider our, our second heading, work after the fall. Work after the fall. And again, this is, I always offer this, but if you just kind of want to listen, you don't want to be feverishly writing, I'll send you my notes. Like, all this is here and more um, in the notes. So work after the fall. We've got to think through this. What do we learn about work now post-fall? We, we learn, this is the obvious, that work is painfully difficult. Work is painfully difficult. It's not easy. You see this through the whole scriptures, but in particular, like in the opening chapters. In Genesis 3, the human couple have rebelled against the word of the Lord, and they've blame shifted, and now now judgment has come. God has come, and there's, there's a reckoning. First he deals with a serpent, then he deals with a woman, and now look what he says to Adam in verse 17. And he said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Because you've done that, cursed is the ground. So is Adam cursed? No, but the ground is cursed. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the first thing we see is that work is painfully difficult. Now, this side of the the fall. And that hasn't changed, by the way. But notice what he's not saying. He's not saying that work is impossible. Okay? 
It's not impossible. Work is possible. If it were impossible, then God's mission wouldn't be able to continue. But God's mission does continue. What he's saying is that work is now painful. It's difficult. It's hard. It's laborious. Creation is cursed. And as a result, it literally resists our work. This is why your work, my work, often feels unproductive. It feels frustrating. It feels futile. Solomon says that working a cursed earth is like chasing the wind. Amen. Like, I feel that. And we definitely get that. I mean, just think through, I mean, in your stage, remember this. You sit down, you're going to write a research paper. Like, man, a lot of weeds, right? Like, we got to, it's like, you got to find the books. It's like, you know, the books are fighting you. You got to absorb what the, the books say. You, know, you got to, like, get your research, get all that together. And then you try to write the paper. And then you got to go back and revise it. You made all these grammatical errors. And you made syntax, Brian. And there's all kinds of issues, right? And then you, you, you blood, sweat, and tears this thing. You turn it in, you get a D. <laughs> vanity of vanities, right? Like, that's, that's kind of where we're at. You know, building a garden bed, raised garden bed, filling it with soil, buying the tomato plants, going out, planting the tomato plants, gardening for my kids, getting them in the ground, pulling out the weeds, finding the hornworms that make their way. Have you ever seen those? These are nasty. Huge green caterpillars that just devour your plants. Kill those things. Slaving over these plants only to wake up right before the harvest and find that the deer have mowed them down. <laughs> if any of you are deer assassins, come to my backyard. You have to have a bow. You know, you maintain facilities, something like this. Lights are burning out. You're having to rewire stuff. Half the time your heat pump doesn't work. I mean, it's just, it is... I renovated my house a few years ago, like from top to bottom. My caulk is cracking around stuff. It's like, that looks like trash. I did this like three years ago, and I may have been because of the renovator. But, I mean, it's just, everything fights us. And it was as a result of this kind of difficulty, we're tempted in certain ways, aren't we? We're tempted toward idleness. We're tempted toward cutting corners. We're tempted toward doing the bare minimum just to get by. But the difficulties, I just want you to see, the difficulties don't mean that work in and of itself is evil. It's not. Our work is hampered, it's massively restricted, and the creation itself fights against us as we try to subdue the earth but it's not, it's not evil. It's actually good. So this is foundational. All right, work after the fall is painfully difficult. It's also disrupted by death. Our work and our, our attempts to advance God's mission is disrupted by our death. As crazy as it sounds, this is not how it was intended to be. I say crazy because we're all used to dying. But that is not the original design. Look in Genesis 3.19. He's explicit here. He says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread 
until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That is a judgment from God because we sinned. Death. So our work, I just want you to see, work after the fall is disrupted by death. So that implies death's got to be overcome. Death has to be overcome in our pursuit of work unto the glory of God eternally. And work after the fall is often perverted and turned against God's good purposes. Work after the fall is perverted and turned against God's good purposes. Now, there's, there's, there's gradations of this perversion. So what I mean is that, like on the, on the most innocent side, if you will, you do good things. You know, work is, work is about good things. Business owners are doing good things, but they're not done, they're done apart from God without any reference to, like, his mission or glory which is not how work was intended to be. So that's a perversion. All the way to doing evil in the name of business and commerce, like the pornography industry. So there's perversions in work, and they're turned against God's purposes now outside of the garden. We've got to think through these things. It's not easy. But again, I'm just laying some big categories out for you, probably raising more questions than I'm answering for you, but... The first, well, not the first, but a huge example you see is in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, right out of the gate. And after the flood, human beings coalesce together in chapter 11. In one, one language, same words, verse 1. As the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, and here's, sounds crazy, technological invention, you ready? Let us make bricks. And burn them thoroughly. That sounds like, oh, how primitive is that? That was a big deal, okay, in this day. So they've clearly taken creation. They've cultivated it. they figured some things out by this point. they formed some culture. And now guess what they're going to do? They're going to use work in opposition to God. They're going to build a big tower in direct rebellion to what God has called them to do, which is disperse over all the earth. They say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So we know the story. The Lord comes down, he sees the city, he confuses their languages, spreads them out. But what I want you to see is that these people are using the labors of their hands and the resources of God's good earth in rebellion to God himself, in rebellion to his mission. And apart from repentance, Apart from having your eyes opened in conversion, like Ephesians 2 talks about, apart from that, work is always perverted. Humans will pursue work for the wrong reasons, against God's ultimate purpose. So like we've said, the goal of work will become self-fulfillment or some other sort of lesser purpose. Instead of service to God, instead of worship to God. And then work becomes an idol, some, some idolatry. Success at work becomes paramount at all costs. It becomes the most important thing in our lives. It's the thing that dominates our, our thinking. We arrange, we arrange our lives around it. We diminish other good responsibilities that the Lord's given us. Or, or we think work exists merely to generate wealth and income. As important as that is, that, that is very important. 
But we do it without realizing that work itself is worship unto God. So this is just helpful for us because we need to turn, repent, be forgiven, be redeemed by the Lord to, to be able to redeem work and work with, our, work with our hands in ways that please Him. Now we see this, this ability to turn and sort of reclaim work after the fall, even under the Old Covenant. We see that. And we could say it like this, work after the fall is recoverable through faith and fear. Really two sides of the same coin there, faith and fear. Faith in God, fear of God. Since we're, since we're in Genesis, you see this faith and fear come together in the line of Seth. In, at the end of chapter 4, it says, To Seth also a son, in verse 26, chapter 4, 26. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Notice this phrase, At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So right there in Genesis 4 is a, a sign that some, at least some, of the descendants of Shem, or descendants of Seth, which is the replacement of Abel, that was killed, the seed of the woman, by Cain, the seed of the serpent. The replacement of Abel is Seth. And there's at least a sign here that at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, meaning they began to worship Him. They began to repent of their sin and their idolatry and come to the Lord. And the descendants of Seth then, you know, you've got guys like Enoch who walk with God, very positive statement, meaning he had repented and was in communion with God. Noah is after him in that, in that descendant line. He also walked with God, had repented. He's even called righteous. So, meaning he had repented of his sin and was trusting in Yahweh. And these kinds of folks, we're going to see through the Bible, this line, this godly line, are able to redeem work. They're able to work with their hands in ways that God blesses. He doesn't curse. He blesses it. It's productive. It's fruitful. Their kids multiply. God comes to Abraham. He makes promises. We looked at that previously. Abraham's family, they become Israel. And again, it's, it's this, this line that God is saying. He's going to continue his mission. He's going to recover work. And they're going to continue to be able to, to, um, to work in ways that please him. And the ultimate example in that line, in that history, is Solomon. Remember we talked about Solomon with marriage? Well, Solomon, we could use that same example for work. Solomon knew he didn't know anything as Israel's king, and he needed wisdom from God to govern God's people. That's the faith and fear. He, didn't, he, did, he wasn't wise in his own eyes. Instead, he feared the Lord. And the Lord poured out wisdom to him, and that wisdom then led to a king who was industrious. He worked incredibly hard, and he, had a, he, he helped cultivate a nation that was also industrious. You see how he, he mobilized them? But they were an industrious unto the end of the worship of God, in and through Israel. And God blessed them, and he prospered them, and the nations started to know the Lord through the ministry, through the kingdom of Solomon and the, and the nation of Israel, like, it, like sort of God had intended. Queen of Sheba was coming in. Other people coming in. It said everyone was hearing about Solomon, his wisdom, all the kings of the earth. And it's not just Solomon's wisdom. It's the wisdom God gave him. So they're hearing about Yahweh through Solomon and his industriousness. So he's using his work, the works of his hands, to fulfill the dominion that was originally given to Adam and Eve. Put that on the back burner for a second. Psalm 128 is another great example of the man who fears the Lord, it says, 
Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. And it says his work, the works of his hands. Just go ahead and turn there. Keep your finger in Genesis. Actually, we're not going back there. So you can... Next, we're going to Exodus. I'm just kidding. (laughs) This is just a great little example of this reverse of the curse through those who fear the Lord. Psalm 128 says, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, verse 1, who walks in His ways. And then notice, You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. And notice this, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And then that blessing then through the king and through the people would then bless Zion. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem, the city of God, and all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. So you see the echoes of Genesis. 1 and 2, right here in Psalm 128. So what's he saying? He's saying that through fear, through faith, that even under the Old Covenant, that the curse can be reversed at some level, and work then can be um, leveraged for God's purposes. It can be fulfilling and can extend God's mission. So back to Solomon for a second. This this thing in the Old Testament sort of apexed in him. It apexed in this, this... this descendant of David, David's son, Solomon, the man of rest, but pretty soon everything crumbled again under him because he sinned. And it crumbled just like it crumbled for Adam and Eve in their fall. Solomon disobeyed, and over a period of years, the, the nation became entrenched in idolatry. It wasn't immediate judgment, but it, it happened over a period of time, and that led to God eventually pouring out his wrath on the nation in the form of exile and the destruction of the city and the temple, and the, the expulsion from the land, from the second Eden, if you will. But while they were in exile, so while they were out there, God had not forgotten his mission or his purposes for humanity and the nation of Israel. He promised that they would receive a Messiah. He would send them one, a Christ, a son of David, a better Solomon, who would redeem his people and bring about the new creation. It would be cosmic in scope, Isaiah 65. And in this new creation, Isaiah 65, the redeemed work would occur. Which brings us to our third heading, work after Christ. So now we're living on this side of of the coming, of the first coming of Christ. And so it's important for us to just briefly think about what Christ did for his people and how that impacts our work. So what did he do do for his people? Well, he came as the Messiah, and of many things he did, he obeyed where we disobeyed. So all we incurred from God was sin and judgment as a result, and all he incurred from God was blessing because of his perfect obedience that we failed to do. So Christ obeyed, the king obeyed on our behalf. And instead of being immediately exalted, he went to the cross and was judged on our behalf. So all of the curses that should have fallen on us for our disobedience and on Israel for her disobedience fell on the Messiah. 
All the wrath of God poured out on Him on the cross and He made propitiation for all of His people. So He obtained the blessings of the covenant for us. He did it, we didn't. And so He comes to us and redeems us and forgives us completely, totally, and and frees us to work for His glory. So a little getting ahead of ourselves, but this whole theme in Ephesians, that we are saved for good works. Ephesians 2.10. Like that is the purpose, and that's connected to this wider theme of work that we've seen all through the Bible. And so that's our first, really, statement. Work after Christ is viewed through the lens of doing good. And I could have gone to Ephesians here, but we've been in Ephesians for like a year and a half. So, I'm going to go to Colossians. So you can turn to Colossians. We'll be in Ephesians next week. Work after the coming of Christ, after His resurrection, is viewed through the lens of doing good or good works. I want you to look at Colossians 1.10. Well, first, let's go back up to verse. Um, let's go back up to verse three. I just want you to hear some of these Genesis phrases. Okay, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So we've heard that He's redeemed you. You've trusted in Him. We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. The good news, which has come to you, listen to this, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. Bearing fruit and multiplying. It's the same if you Old Testament's written in Hebrew, most of it. But if that was translated into Greek, and then they were to use those Greek words here, it would be the same two words. Okay, Bearing fruit and increasing. Bearing fruit and multiplying. The Gospel's doing this in the whole world as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. He's made known to us your love in the Spirit. All right, verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, meaning the day we heard about your conversion, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, catch it, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing, multiplying in the knowledge of God. Deliberately echoing back to those Genesis 1 and 2, or Genesis 1 phrases, bearing fruit and multiplying. And he's saying the bearing fruit and multiplying is viewed at least in part through the lens of doing good or every good work, like he says here. He wants us to bear fruit in every good work. You see how comprehensive that is? Every good work. That's, that's fruit. And that's now redemption. That's the redemption of work in and through Christ, through the gospel, is you're now going to bear fruit in every good work. Whatever your hands find to do. And I, I, I'm pointing this out because what's very interesting about the New Testament is what you will not find in the New Testament is what you would think which would be reforming human institutions. Tracking? 
you don't find the apostles telling us to reform human governments, to reform all these sort of institutional kingdoms of the world. You, don't, you, hear, you hear them saying, pursue good works, pursue good works, pursue good works. In, in those kingdoms, And the good works attract people to the gospel and it also puts a target on your back for persecution. Because the reformation of all the human institutions, that is coming when the king comes back. And right now, we are gathering kingdom citizens through the gospel and through our work. And so it's it's every Good work. It's doing good. It's viewed through this lens of doing good. Good works. Colossians 1.10. And what you also don't see in the New Testament is this sort of like narrow view of like, well, this is work and that's not. It's basically like anything that's good that you find your hands to do is good work. It's varied, the way I put it this way, it's varied according to the opportunities, the gifts, and life circumstances given to you by God. I know it's a mouthful, so I'm just going to slow down. Let you, those of you who are writing, I'll have mercy on you. Work after Christ is varied. Meaning it's not, we're not all doing the same thing, you know. It's varied, and, it, and it's according to, there's a lot of factors in this, okay. There's opportunities that you might have, and they might not. They're gifts that, that one person may have and another person may not. They're life circumstances given to you by God that one person may have and one person may not. And that's all under the sovereign hand of God. And so these good works are, are very, these opportunities, vocations we have access to. Some people have access to education, other people don't. Some people's dads were farmers and they trained their kids in that and in third world countries and others are living in France and have technological jobs because they went to some school that they got a... The point is that these opportunities are varied. Vocations are varied. And I think you see that very clearly in Colossians 3. So if you flip over one page, Colossians 3.17, notice what Paul says. He says, and, and whatever you do, hear that open-endedness? Whatever you do, in word or deed, whether you're saying stuff or you're doing stuff with your hands, whatever you're doing, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So whatever you do, whatever, whatever type of dominion your hand finds, do it in His name. So what does that mean? In His name. It means that our work is then carried out with excellence in imitation of Christ. Our work is carried out with excellence in the imitation of Christ. How am I getting that? Well, Paul says that we do everything in his name. In his name. To bear someone's name means that you you carry him with you. You're resembling him. You're doing things the way He does them. So when I work in Christ's name, I better be working like Christ would work. Because I'm carrying His name. Christ was productive. Christ was diligent. Christ worked for the Father's glory. 
not his own. Christ was full of joy. There was nothing beneath him. So we carry out our work, according to Paul, whatever we do, in word or deed, we do everything in the name of Christ. We do it joyfully, giving thanks to God the Father through him for the opportunity to bear fruit for his name's sake. So it's carried out, and, 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 and I think, don't miss this piece, there's a witness component to this. So I think sometimes younger folks think of their job as sort of a mission field. It is, <laughs> in more ways than you might realize. You know, if you're a shoddy worker, that's, a, that's, a, that's not a good testimony. You're not bearing the name of Christ well. So, but if you're evangelizing everybody and you get fired because you're a bad worker, that's not helpful, okay? So let, let your hardcore diligence in the workplace uh, carry over. And people ask you about what's going on. You have a reason for the hope that's within you. You have a reason. You can articulate why, what's driving you to work with this kind of excellence, with this kind of diligence, where nobody's watching you and you're not cutting corners. We'll talk about that next week. But the point I just want to show you here is that our work after Christ should be carried out with excellence and imitation of Him. And our work after Christ is performed heartily in obedience to Him. Heartily, with our whole heart, in obedience to Him, ultimately now. So our Lord has, has come incarnate in Christ in the flesh, and so... The, our, our Lord of, of Genesis 2, who, who formed Adam from the dust, is now, we know, the Lord Jesus Christ, and He's the one unto whom we work. In Colossians, as well as Ephesians, as we'll see next week, is very clear about this. We're just going to read it. I'm not going to comment much on it. Bond servants obey in everything, verse 22, chapter 3. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, Whatever you do, again, notice the open-endedness of that. Whatever you do, no matter how menial, this is a, this is a, he's talking to a slave, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And then the phrase that's full of motivation for the rest of our days, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Talk about that. So our work is in obedience to Him. It's not just for a paycheck, in other words. We work heartily, diligently, productively. Okay, if you're a barista, you want to make the best quality lattes you can. All right? Sounds cheesy, but it's true. You want to make them as efficiently as you can. All right? You don't want to cost the company time. You don't want people to be waiting on that drink. Okay? But do it with, with excellence. If you're a custodial worker, you want to clean with excellence and efficiency and professionalism. Why? Because it's ultimately for Christ. He sees it all and promises to reward it all. More on this next week. But speaking of reward, this is why Paul can say that our work after Christ is never, ever in vain. Never in vain. First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord 
your labor is not in vain. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's never in vain. Now, why is it never in vain? And in particular, now, because Solomon says, Ecclesiastes is vanity, right? Paul's saying, no, it's not. Not that Scripture's contradicting itself. If we read all of Ecclesiastes, just go listen to Pastor Brian's sermons on that. He'll straighten you out. But this is, I think, a deliberate echo to Ecclesiastes, saying there is never vanity now in the new covenant in our work in Christ, as menial as it is, because of the resurrection of Christ. That's, that's the context of chapter 15. Christ has been resurrected from the dead. And so will you. Which leads us to our last category, our last heading. Work in the new creation. Why is it never in vain? Because we're heading toward a new creation, a new land that will be restored, where we will be rewarded for our faithful labor to Christ and given new and greater responsibilities. New and greater responsibilities in the new creation. Just a few things to say here to finish up. Work in the new creation, then, maybe a new category for you, will be fully liberated from the curse. We fully liberated from the curse. Paul talks about this in Romans 8. Romans 8.21, he says, For we know that the whole creation, everything, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Well, let me back up. 21, I'll start in 22. Start in 18. Shoot, let's get the context. He's talking about being glorified with Christ, and he says we have to suffer first for that. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself, key, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. A lot we could say about that. Just want to point out, this does not say that our final destiny is in a, a landless place. What's going to be restored? The earth. The earth will be restored. Like, well, that's concrete, but <laughs> the earth, this place, we will be fully liberated from the curse. The earth will be fully liberated. Work in the new creation will, that, that restraint, that thing that makes it so frustrating, will be taken up. And this is fully in line with everything the Old Testament prophets say about the restoration of the land. 
I've mentioned Isaiah 65. You can write that down. You'll probably have more questions after you read it. That's okay. And this is fully in line with what Peter said that Christ would bring about when he comes back the second time in Acts 3. The restoration of all things. And then he says that the prophets themselves talked about. He doesn't say the restoration of people. He says the restoration of everything. The cosmos. The world. So this world will be fully liberated from the curse. And work in the new creation will be performed by eternally embodied, we call it glorified, humans. Work in the new creation will be performed by eternally embodied and glorified humans. The resurrection hope fueled the New Testament authors. It fueled them. The fact that we are going to exist again in a body that is glorified and never again to decay fueled everything for the apostles. Works can be performed by eternally embodied and glorified humans. Philippians 3 t- tells us about this hope that we have in, in the resurrection. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven. So that's where our citizenship belongs. It's, it's in heaven. And from it, from heaven, we're waiting for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be a spirit? No, to be like His glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So you will come out of the dirt and be reconstituted as an human, embodied human being. That's what it means to be human, by the way, is to be embodied. It's a soul in a, in a body. And you'll be, you'll be glorified, made like Christ, who ate breakfast after his resurrection. Fish cooked it even. Um, and, or, or you'll either be raised from, you'll be uh, coming out of the dirt, or you'll be there when he returns and, and instantly glorified, in an instant. And so we think, we hear that phrase, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, and we think, oh, I've got to be a spirit. That's not what Paul's saying in the Corinthian letters. He's saying that what you are now, like the, thing, the, the, the sin-riddled body of death you carry around can't inherit the kingdom of God. It needs something imperishable. So this work, then, is going to be performed by an eternally embodied and glorified human beings. His new humanity of of Ephesians that we've seen. And this work in the new creation will involve the priest-king functions originally given to Adam and Eve. The priest-king functions originally given to Adam and Eve. Just going to read a few texts to you. Revelation 1, 5 and 6. He says, and back up in verse 4, Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is, who was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, 
to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and catch this, made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He's made us, the church, a kingdom and priests, and he has the dominion. And he is, what he knows, says, the ruler of the king's where? On earth. He's not, he's not somewhere else. <laughs> he's ruling them. And we'll rule them here when he comes back. And so he says he's coming with the clouds, verse 7, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him when he comes. Flip over to Revelation 2, 26. I just want to show you I'm not reading into this, okay? I'm not reading this theme into, the, into Revelation. 2.26, he says, The one who conquers, he's talking to the church, uh, the church of Thyatira. And he says, to The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over what? The nations. To the one who conquers, to this little piddly Christian in Thyatira, who overcomes, meaning they stay faithful to the end. To the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will, notice this, rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. He is quoting Psalm 2 and applying it to the Christian. That is fascinating you should write down Psalm 2 and go look at that. Because that's a promise to the Messiah. And the Messiah is saying it belongs to you if you overcome this kind of regal authority to crush nations. Rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Revelation 3, 21. Again, another promise at the end of this church in Laodicea, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. Again, to the church. Promise of a kingly function. How many more do you want me to drag you through? Uh, I'll do chapter 5. Um, verse 10. Here these elders, they're singing the song before the throne. Worthy are you to take the scroll, open its seals. You were slain by your blood. You ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It includes you if, you believe, if you're a believer. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign where? On the earth. They shall reign on the earth. So this, this, I mean, we can keep going, I won't, but we're late. We're going to inherit the earth, Matthew 5.5. We're going to be set over all of Christ's possessions, Matthew 24. We're going to judge the world and angels, 1 Corinthians 6. 
we're going to reign on earth. So that's where this whole thing is headed. So what's this work going to involve? You could fill it out from the prophets, but I didn't go there because it raises a whole bunch of other questions um, that I currently have. So I've got to work, that, I gotta work those out to be transparent. But I know that it's going to at least involve the priest-king functions originally given to Adam and Eve in the first creation, in fulfillment of all of God's purposes for the new heavens and the new earth. So what we do now, we can end here, what we do now matters. Because how we work in the most menial tasks yields reward and responsibility in the coming kingdom. In that, number four. How you work now at your job, how you work now in your family, how you work now in your studies, how you work now in the church, how you work now, how, how, you, how you work, how faithful you are, will be evaluated by Christ, and it will correlate directly with the level of responsibility you have in the coming kingdom. That is insane. And you talk about a motivation to work. <laughs> That's, that's it. That's there. Okay? That's our motivation. Now, next week, we're going to get back in Ephesians, and we're going to look at, okay, so what does it look like? Okay, so tell me. Tell me how I work in a way that will benefit me in the coming new creation. So we will look at that. All right? We'll look at that. For now, uh, I want you to have this framework. I think it will be helpful for you as you move forward in the next job or studies or whatever you're, whatever you're doing. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would give us this vision that your spirit would do exactly what you intend him to do and you would, you would change us uh, as a result of these truths, uh, making a difference in all the little areas that we work and we play and we interact with other, other people. Lord, we fail so much in these areas and yet you forgive us and you are patient and you're working out your will and your ways, and you even often override our, our failures in work for your glory. And those are even opportunities, too, to be humble. So we thank you. We thank you for how kind you are, and we pray that this, this text, these texts, these truths would motivate us, this theme would motivate us to, to work hard for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.